Whether your beer is in a bottle, can, or glass, kick back and relax. It's Better on Draft. We are live, Better on Draft Podcast. My name is Ken. Thank you so much for joining us. I truly appreciate it on this Friday night. We are having a great interview today, but I want to go over and see what my co-hosts are drinking before we begin, starting with Wendy. Wendy, what do you have? Well, it is my favorite time of year, and I have parents who love me, so they picked up a Mad Elf Grand Crew for me on their way home this week. And uh, Dan, what do you got? Hold on, I'm confused. One of your favorite time of the year is Veterans Day? (laughs) (laughs) No, it is Mad Elf season. Oh, gotcha. So I've got a couple of things here. I've got a bacon and eggs from Pizza Port, and then another one of my all-time favorites, the Malpais from La Cumbre. All right. And for myself, I have two beautiful cans of the Juno juice from the Alaskan brewery, uh, deciding to try to clear out some of these uh, IPAs and hazies and stuff that is in the back of my fridge that continues to get pushed in the back because you all know how much I love me some ipas uh but with us in studio is our guest uh we have matt matteo is uh what everybody calls him apparently uh from fiddlehead brewing why don't you give us a little bit of introduction tell us what you do uh and a little bit about fiddlehead all right welcome to the show thanks for having me um my name is matt and i am the owner of fiddlehead brewing company Uh, I've dedicated my life to craft beer i've been in the industry for uh, 25 plus years and um, enjoyed every single day of it. It's been a, an incredible journey. And um, Fiddlehead, which is my uh, first project that I've taken on uh, as the owner, has, has been uh, an incredible success story. We've been in business now for uh, 12 plus years. And um, we are at the beginning of this year, we were the 36th largest craft brewery in the country out of 10,000. And we are uh, 20, about 25% over those numbers this year. So we are going to uh, find ourselves probably, you know, in the top 20 next year, if not uh, low 30s. So some really exciting things happening. And we do that with a very uh, simplified playbook. I don't have 20 SKUs. I focus on a couple of core brands. And um, Fiddlehead IPA, which is what I'm drinking right now, which is a beer for all occasions. And there it is. Okay. Uh, Highly recommended. And this is uh, 85% of our sales. So uh, it's a beer that I drink often and always. And people constantly ask me, well, what other beers do you drink? And the the, the real answer is none. I, I uh, I only go to accounts that serve Fiddlehead. So when I'm out in the market, I'm drinking my beer. And uh, I'm always trying it. I always want to make sure that uh, you know a lot of breweries and brewers tend to get blinded because they're only drinking it fresh. But I will drink the beer. Uh, I will purposely take home old cases, and so I'm I'm constantly checking on the quality and making sure that the shelf stability is there. I I have a follow up question to that because it's more of a question of curiosity. But when you run into an account that maybe overpurchased, got overzealous, um, you know, thinking they can move a specific amount of cases and now they're sitting on some old product. How do you as a business owner um, rectify that type of situation to make sure that, um, you know, certain facilities aren't carrying old product anymore other than buying your product to, to go dump somewhere? Sure. That's a great question because it's one of the most difficult things to uh, to have control over being that, you know, in, in most every state in the, in, in the United States, we're selling through a three tiered system. So um, once it leaves our control, it goes to our distributors. So you need to work closely with your distributors. And then the next sale goes to to the account. Um, and it gets very difficult to have that reach. And the reality is once the accounts have bought the beer, it is theirs to do with as they please. But um, we have taken a very strict uh, standard with all of our uh, accounts and with our distributor partners. So uh, we demand that our distributors hold no more than 15 days worth of inventory, which is very rare in this industry. Most uh, other suppliers are giving their distributor um, up to 60 to 90 days worth of inventory. 
And uh, there's a lot of reasons to do that. It's very tempting. The distributor will give you money. You'll have more cash on hand that you can use to fund your business. But for me, it's it, I made a decision uh, when I put my beer into distribution that that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was quality and freshness. And so we demand not only 15 days worth of inventory, we demand cold storage from everything from shipping. Uh, the accounts can only store the beer cold. So when you look at our numbers um, and we're out of that top 50, there's not many of other breweries that have those types of uh, requirements. Um, we are selling all that crazy um, amount of beer through the cold box. So we're not selling beer at the case stacks at the end of the aisle in the supermarket where the majority of beer is sold in America. Um, we're not selling beer at, at, at you know, retailers that don't have cold storage. Um, so we're missing a huge segment of the category, but we're still able to put up some incredible numbers. And that is because of, uh, in my mind, the reason is because we're selling such a fresh product. And whether the consumer gets that or not uh, is to be determined. But uh, what they do get is every time they open up a Fiddlehead IPA, the beer is super fresh and it's, and it's always kept cold. So uh, that is one way that we're able to to control that. So when we first started with cans, to get back to your to your original question, how do we police it? Uh, we would uh, our distributors were on strict orders. If they went to an account to deliver the next week and there was still product from the prior week, well, then that beer couldn't be dropped, and they need to sell through first. Uh, I'm not worried about out of stocks. I'd rather uh, go out of stock than have old beer on the shelf. I, uh, I, I think I, I'm like most consumers out there. If I can't get something, I'm not going to stop wanting it. I want it even more. So, uh, you know, having a, having an out of stock is not the, the end of the world, in my opinion. When dealing with maybe larger players in the game, um, here in Michigan, we have Meyer, Kroger, there's, you know, Giant Eagle, um, whatever your large grocer is, Walmart, um, maybe even over in uh, the New England and the Vermont area. How do you deal with maybe uh, those larger organizations that might have a bigger uh, hand in the, the distribution because they're buying so much product already? Yeah, again, we we don't we don't do volume discounts. A, a lot of uh, larger brands will do. Um, they'll they'll incentivize uh, a, a retailers to buy more by giving a, a break on price. Uh, we don't do that um, because that's goes that's counter to what we're trying to do with uh, delivering the freshest pro uh, product. So um, it's it's working with them, and you know, uh, like Trader Joe's is a great example. Uh, it's a huge retailer in the New York City area. Uh, in New York City market, and they don't have cold storage. Well, they wanted our beer, and we needed to figure out how we can make this work. So um, while you don't go to the cheese section to find beer, that's where they forced us in. They they made a spot for us in the cheese section uh, in, in their stores in New York City, and, and now you can go get some cheese and grab some Fiddlehead IPA. So, um, you know, there, there's ways around it if you're persistent, but it is, uh, it is a constant uphill battle, and I feel that my uh, – especially uh, you know my, my distributor partners as well as my, our sales force they spend a lot of time uh, you know being the cold police we call it um, and they're going out there and, and you know checking on retailers but um, you know one of, one of the greatest resources in my opinion is your consumer base and so we clearly label on all of our cans please uh, store cold uh, when we sell our beer in a four pack on the top of the pack tech, it says must be store cold on a sticker. So um, we really have made a campaign to educate our consumer and to uh, to let us know if they're seeing retailers that are not uh, conforming to to our wishes. So um, that is uh, that's been a, a, a large uh, success that 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 uh, Fiddlehead has definitely undertaken and, and really um, done well with. Well, before I pass it over to, to Dan with a, a few more questions, why don't you give us the rundown? What is Fiddlehead IPA? Uh, sure. Fiddlehead IPA is uh, really what, uh, what I saw as a whole in the, uh, definitely in the Vermont market when I first started and a, uh, and kind of new England uh, as, as a, as a whole was, there was all these great IPAs that were being created, but um, there was not, no one had, had gotten to the scale where they were 
producing one of these beers on a large scale that was readily available to uh, to bars and restaurants. And so that's really was kind of the driver. My business plan really summed up in one sentence. That was what I set out to do in 2010. And um, we, it is a really uh, balanced IPA. It's uh, about 45 IBUs, so it's not cr- incredibly bitter. It's bitter enough to to you know be stylistically correct. It's certainly I wouldn't describe it as like a soft IPA, which is kind of uh, another popular style uh, around New England. Uh, but it's so it has it has that the bitterness, but it, we uh, spend a lot of time and energy dry hopping the beer. And so we put a lot of uh, dry hops into this beer. So it has a really beautiful dank hop aroma, which uh, kind of gives the consumer kind of a perceived bitterness where they feel that the beer is actually more bitter than it actually is. And I think that's what people like. They like the smell of, of hops, but not necessarily the bitter or astringent flavor associated with that. So um it's a really well balanced beer in that sense. And it checks the boxes for, for a lot of different types of consumer. Um, I hear all the time from a uh, craft heavy consumer that's really loves the beer. Hey, it's, you know, whenever I go here, 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 I always grab my fiddlehead or I hear from people like, I don't, I hate IPAs typically, but I love your beer. So it really is able to, uh, to bring people uh, into the, into the category as well as satisfy people that are, deeply embedded into the category. So uh, it's really been a, a fantastic uh, vehicle for that. Um, I actually want to respond to that real quick because um, I don't get Fiddlehead beer a whole lot because I don't spend a lot of time in the Northeast. <laughs> but yeah. um, I went back and looked on my untapped and I found that I did have um, the second fiddle back mm-hmm. in 2016 uh, which was at the very beginning of my um, IPA journey, I guess I would call it. And um, my, I don't, I rarely rate things, and I put notes in there a lot for me to just remember what I liked about the beer. And it, my note was actually, this is a, an IPA that I could drink on a regular basis, and which is pretty high praise from somebody who is so hop timid at the time. Yeah. So I, I wish that I had had more access to it. So now I'm looking for somebody to mule it back for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right. So I want to jump in here. So you're in an interesting part of the country when it comes to breweries um, being just south of Burlington. People yes. that don't know, Burlington is the largest uh, brewery city per capita out there in America. Uh, what was it like getting started there? Um, I know you opened in 2010. What was the competition like in getting your feet on the ground and getting your brand out there? Uh, well, I've been in the Vermont beer scene for, for many years, since 1996. Um, and I uh, I worked uh, for Magic Hat for 13 years. I was the head brewer there. So I, I had a lot of contacts. I did a lot of different uh, things. I And so I really felt that uh, the kind of IPAs were just emerging at that time. And uh, really, for, for me, it was kind of going after that draft play, which was a space that a lot of people weren't playing in. Canning had just become quite popular. And so a lot of people were going directly into package. And um, my idea was really to focus on on the, the on-premise, which is where I feel brands are really built. So uh, that, that was kind of our goals early on. You know, there's, the, yeah, there's, there's a lot of competition here. There's, there's a lot of uh, noise. You know, there's a lot of, you go into, uh, into a package store, there's a lot of four packs on the shelf. Um, so the most important thing for me when I started was to own my home market. And, and before I ever thought about shipping a drop of beer out of the state, I needed to satisfy every last outlet in my home state prior to doing that. And I think back to that Wendy's point, like if you don't get beer, we have a very small footprint. We're only in uh, 10 States right now. And I think that that's probably will be uh, as many States as we're able to grow fiddlehead with uh, at the same time, you know, keeping up 15 days worth of inventory, making sure the beer is fresh, making sure the beer is cold. It becomes a lot more challenging uh, logistically as you send the beer farther and farther from home. So, uh, 
Yeah, it's 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 great that uh, you know Vermont is. Uh, it's great that there's a lot of emphasis and energy placed on 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 craft beer. Uh, when I first got into the industry, New England was kind of the laughing stock of uh, of the rest of the United States when it came to craft. Early on, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with kind of the New England scene, uh, there was a, a guy by the name of Peter Austin, and he sold his Peter Austin system, which was a uh, it was like a, a seven barrel system. It came with everything, including recipes and ringwood yeast. And so every pub uh, throughout New England had one of these systems. So they're all making this uh, top cropping, open fermented uh, ringwood style beers that all tasted like uh, like butter and uh and the big malt bombs so uh that was kind of the origins of it but uh you know we we uh we we had a lot of dedicated people and and consumers that were really our diehard vermonters that love local products so there's always an emphasis and on local products so you know if you make a great product and you deliver at a great price there's always going to be room for you in the market and um Vermont is, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of a testament to that. So it's been a kind of slow, steady, steady rise. And, uh, but it's been really exciting. And I think that our location and being part of the Vermont beer scene has been instrumental in our success. Now your flagship beer, as we were talking about is the IPA. What made you go with an IPA to be your main seller? Well, at the time, no one was doing it. The reality was, uh, no one was, uh, this was 2000 when I first, opened my doors in 2011. Um, you know, the alchemists had started, they were doing some canning. Um, Hill was, you know, Sean Hill was just getting started as well. And no one had uh, wide distribution, uh, statewide distribution of, of, uh, of, of a beer. So of an IPA. And that was, I, I kind of was able to do this type of beers that I was interested in consuming and I felt that people and people's palates were kind of migrating towards a hoppier style of beer. So it was a perfect storm. The timing was right. We focused on making uh, an IPA and, and re- doing one and doing it really, really well. And then second fiddle was uh, uh, the second product we came out with. And that was a double IPA. Uh, and that was one that we canned uh, well before we ever canned our flagship IPA. Our flagship IPA actually hadn't been canned until up until the pandemic. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I'm glad you brought up the alchemist. Uh, You know, John Kimmich, he's been on the show. He is the father of the new England IPA and he was on here telling us he hates where new England IPAs have gone. Um, I don't see a new England IPA on your menu or any of your beers that you make. Uh, Do you avoid this style or tell us about that? Uh, Well, when you go to Philadelphia, it's it's just called a cheesesteak, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's not. It's not called a Philly cheesesteak. There, it's called a cheesesteak. So, if you're in Vermont, if I the way I see it, I'm an IPA. It is a New England IPA because that's where it's being made. I don't need to to accent, you know, to really uh, call that out. I felt in in our marketing, and uh, I try to stay away from the you know those all those words, those buzzwords, juicy, hazy, uh, you know, all all those all, all New England. Um, to me, the, and what, when I set out to develop uh, my, my beer and uh, develop my brand, um, the most important thing to me is the quality of the product that's inside the can. Uh, it's not, it's, it's really, I don't want someone to drink the beer because it's from Vermont or I'm from Vermont. Um, that's great. That's, that's great reason, but that's, that shouldn't be the driver here. Um, the driver is great beer. I drink this beer because I really enjoy it and not because it's supposed to be, it's this hot new style or it's this, that, or the other thing. I drink it because of the the quality and the merit of what's inside. All right. Now taking a look at your menu, the one non light beer I see on there is a bourbon barrel aged Porter. Uh, talk to us about your barreling program and what you do with that. Uh, barreling program is not much. Uh, we just, again, it's uh, we have a, an incredible brewery that is really <laughs> laid out, laid out to produce uh, some uh, to produce IPA, and so there's uh, we don't really try to 
bog our distributors and our consumers down with too many SKUs. But occasionally we like to have some fun and do some different things. So Hodad, the beer that you mentioned, is a uh, vanilla chocolate coconut porter that we've been brewing for, for many years. It's actually the first beer that we canned. I think it was back in like 2013. And uh, from there, we tried to make an imperial version of it. So that's what this what you're seeing on our menu there. And we aged that in uh, in some bourbon barrels, and it really turned out fantastic. It's about uh, just just under 11% ABV, and uh, it has all those great characteristics and layers of flavor that is that is really complex. All right, our final question. I'm going to send it over to Wendy. Oh. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say. I mean, we we do we do uh, we have a we have a sour program as well, but these these are uh, very small priorities for us. It's really uh, it, it, we're very focused on on the day to day and the you know the, the quality and consistency of our core brands. Yeah, absolutely. And like I was saying, final question before I send it over to Wendy. You mentioned that you feel like you're pretty much at capacity for your current distribution uh, based on your requirements. Uh, for these locations, do you anticipate expanding further so you can expand that footprint or no? Uh, I, my goal is, is to be, uh, an inch, an inch wide and a mile deep. So, uh, I, I do want to sell a lot more beer, Dan, but I want to sell it in, my, in the existing markets. And some of, you know, some of the, the hallmarks of our, of our success story has been, uh, essentially double digit growth every single year that we've been in business. And that continues to this day. Uh, and that continues in mature markets like Vermont. We still consider, I mean, even though we have, uh, I think we, we were looking at it yesterday, I think we've got about 800 tap handles in the state. Um, there's always another one to find. Uh, there's always, uh, there's always a new points of distribution out there. So it's our goal to continue to find those points of distribution as well as to, um, really work with our, our retailers and uh, sell more in the accounts that we're in. So um, we are, we're doing f- fantastic, but there are some markets where uh, we could always be doing better. And um, so we're, you know, we're looking to double down on those markets, uh, investing heavily in uh, resources in terms of people, point of sale, um, uh, marketing opportunities, et cetera. So, we're, you know, we're always looking to, to continue to, uh, to grow the business, but it's going to be in that footprint. Our, our car, it's going to be very close to, to our existing footprint where, where it is today. So speaking of those numbers, um, I was going back and looking through kind of the history of the brewery. And I saw that you started out with 15,000 barrel system and then you moved a 15 down barrel to- system, a 15 barrel system. I'm 15 sorry. barrel, sorry. Yeah. And then, so then in 2017, you were at 50,000, 50? No, we, we, uh, we had a 15 barrel system. And, um, you know, that was uh, when I designed and developed the, the, the business plan and the kind of brewery that I wanted to, to create for myself was a, a distrib- distribution brewery. Uh, you know, at the time, a lot of people were falling in love with their, with their tap rooms, right? They wanted to get the, they wanted to keep all the margin. They wanted to sell every last drop across the bar uh, at their own facility where, where they're making the best uh, return on their investment. Uh, I saw that as an important part of my business, but that wasn't the business that I set out to go into. I set out to go into distribution. So uh, where most people are, a lot of people that are uh, in my shoes make a mistake in my opinion is they they undersize their equipment they'll start with a seven barrel system it's very difficult to to scale up from a seven barrel system uh and do it successfully and there's just not you're not making enough beer uh to uh to really have any type of meaning meaningful distribution so uh for us we started with the 15 barrel system uh we were able to do about 10,000 barrels a year on that system uh, two years in a row we ran out of space eventually, so we had to build another brewery where we put a 30-barrel system in. And that 30-barrel system, I think, got us to about 50,000 barrels uh, 24 hours a day. And then our last expansion was a 60-barrel system, uh, but it's a, it's incredible. Uh, it's a German brew house by the manufacturer Rolex, 
and it's able to do uh, 12 turns a day. So we knock out 12 60-barrel batches a day. And on our 30-barrel system, we were lucky to get five out. So we're able to produce, even though it's twi- it's only twice the size, we're able to produce a lot of beer uh, in any given amount of time. So um, we by it's kind of modular, so we can expand. We can add another kettle and add another louder ton, and that can easily get us up to that two hundred thousand barrel mark, which is where I'd like to, where I see the the business being uh, growing to in, in the next three or four years. So, how has um, an increase like that over the years changed the business plan, maybe business model, or the culture of the company? Well, those are the most important things. You got to kind of keep those uh, keep those in check, and it is it's it's very difficult. And I, you know, having been in the industry for a long time, and um, like I said, I, I, my previous employer that I worked for, uh, it, they underwent very similar type things where we're growing rapidly, and uh, and then there's definitely a, a change in culture. So, uh, I still have my hands in just about every aspect of the business um, right now, and uh, that. I'm able to do at the size that it is. Uh, I'm a very hands-on owner. I love to uh, to get involved, and uh, so we. I think we've done a, a very good job. Um, you know, at first we were just a small startup, and I had a lot of dreams. And you know, what our biggest asset is our employees, and so we kind of, uh, while the culture it's gotten a little bit more corporate, but through doing that, we've been able to offer an incredible amount of benefits pay structure and things that are working to keep um, our most valuable employees uh, and let them grow with the company. So we've had a lot of great success stories. I've uh, had a a large percentage of the people have been with me uh, for a very long time. And uh, it's a very collaborative, uh, inclusive environment. And we're very proud of that. That's awesome. I saw a video, um, from I think it was like 2017 where you said that you were able to use points from per- from purchases to take the employees on a vacation every year. That was my thing. Yeah. I couldn't afford to, to pay them well, but I, 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 I ran up a lot of money on my credit cards. So I would I'd buy all my raw materials, which I still do to this day on credit cards. And, uh, and then we would have just, you know, I'd have just, millions of points and then at the end of the year we'd go on a giant trip and we went to vegas one year we went to miami we went to mexico a couple of times so it's uh that was a early on was it was a good perk um and uh i'm really excited because i've been somebody who's been in the industry for 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 such a long time uh when i first got into it, it it was uh my first job at Magic Hat, actually, they didn't even pay me uh, the first for the first six months. It was uh, they were just like, "Come clean kegs, like we'll pay you if when we can." And then one day they they were like, "All right, we'll give you seven dollars an hour." So, uh, you know, I've I've seen both sides of it. It's really encouraging today to see um, how far it's come. The you know people are making uh, you know good wages. And it's become a very uh, a good career. It's really become a career path, which wasn't uh, an opportunity when I was in college. Um, you know, just just uh, you know, not too long ago. So it's <laughs> it's great to see how far the industry's come, and um, you know, we're we're very we're very proud to be part of it. Better on draft is made possible thanks to our sponsor, North Center Brewing in Northville, Michigan. Open Tuesday to Sunday, North Center provides a fun atmosphere with amazing beer. Try their Bobby English while playing shuffleboard or wash down their classic Reuben sandwich with a glass of painkiller. Find them online at northcenterbrewing.com. Better on Draft is sponsored by Zatuna Liquor. Located on Rochester Road in Rochester Hills, go visit Jack and see why he is known as one of the best beer and bourbon stores in the state. A large variety of singles, wine, booze, and snacks, Zatuna Liquor is your one-stop shop before a party. Better on Draft is sponsored by Craftapt. Currently located in 11 states including Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, Craftapt is a monthly subscription that pays for itself after just one visit to your local brewery. Use the code BOD at checkout and receive 15% to any membership, not just for Michigan fans. For Michigan fans, get 50% off your first two pints at each venue you go to, including Better On Draft-sponsored North Center Brewing and 2022 March Draftness winner Copper Hop in St. Clair Shores. So I, 
I don't know how to describe it. I am a consummate volunteer. So every brewer that I talk to, I ask them what um, their brewery does in their community because I know that um, the breweries that have strong ties with their community um, tend to um, get a lot more support from their community. So um, I was reading about Team Mastermind. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, one, one of the... Uh, one of the reasons and drivers for, for me to start the company was to have an opportunity to give back to the community. And um, I have one son, he's 17 years old right now. And uh, unfortunately he's had uh, well over 30 surgeries in his life. And uh, he was a make a wish recipient uh, when he was in 2010, I believe. And uh, he, he's just an incredible guy. Um, but he, he needs, uh, he needs a community and services that, you know, are, are, are meaningful to, for his health. So, um, we, as a family and as an organization decided, uh, how can we give back? So we, uh, we launched mastermind, which was an incredible beer that we had produced. It was, uh, I typically don't talk about recipes and ingredients, but, uh, it's no secret when you have this beer, it's a very galaxy heavy, uh, beer galaxy was just starting to come to, to the U S when I developed this beer. And, uh, so we sold it, uh, initially in, uh, 12 ounce cans. And we would, uh, we didn't have a canning unit at the time. It was like a mobile canner would come. And so every, we would do that three weeks out of the month. And, uh, we would sell a 12 ounce case of 12 ounce cans for $78. So it was the equivalent of a 16 ounce can. And the 25% uh, of the sales, not, not of profit, but 25% of sales from the sale of mastermind went and continues to go to the Vermont Children's Hospital for the beer that's sold in Vermont. So we've had a, um, the, we redid the, um, at the, the wing where the, the children's hospital is, we redid the, uh, the room for, uh, like the playroom. So when kids are at the hospital and recuperating, uh, they can go and the, the playroom was, it was okay, but it wasn't great. So we, um, we raised, uh, over $400,000 to redo the playroom. And um, it was really meaningful. And we have a plaque on the wall there. So I'm uh, really excited about that. But uh, you make a great point, Wendy. And so what we do with Mastermind and at, what we continue to do is as we roll that out to new markets, we work with our distributor partners uh, and we find meaningful uh, sponsors in those markets. And we will, uh, all the sales from Mastermind in that market go to a local charity. So if you go onto our Mastermind page, our, the consumers can see, okay, when I'm buying this in the Albany, uh, you know, in the, in the capital region of uh, New York State, uh, the dollars are going to the Double H Ranch. Or if I buy the in Philadelphia, the dollars are going to CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So we're able to tie that in with the local community. And it has definitely helped us uh, become great partners and uh, got a lot of ex uh, excitement around those uh, from those local markets. So we're, we're really excited about that. So yeah, there's a list. We just pulled up a list there. There's a, a list of some of the, the, the uh, organizations that we supported and we created a fund to do this. So we're able to, uh, to put the money out and uh, we are, we're very, uh, it's, the, not only is the beer fantastic, but uh, but we're doing a good good thing at the same time. If you're listening to the podcast only version of this show, of course you can always check us out on youtube.com forward slash better on draft. Uh, but we will have the link in the show notes, so make sure to just go into the show notes to find it. Back to you, Wendy. So um, I'm definitely a sucker for any type of beer with the cause, or pretty much any cause. So I wanted to make sure that our listeners knew about that. Um, so that if they are in the area where they can get some, they can help with that cause. Um, so you have gone on record saying that draft is the best way to drink beer and the best way for your beer to be represented. Um, obviously, us here at Better on Draft wholly agree with that. Yes. <laughs> uh, can you explain um, why you believe that for the non-believers that might be listening? Sure. Uh, well, draft uh, differs from package and that it's always kept cold. So with any brand, any, if you have it on draft, it's, it's 
that beer has been kept cold its entire life. So uh, it's going to be a much better repers- representation of what the brewer's intentions were in developing that beer. Um, when you're out, you're having fun. And I think that, um, so when we first started, my goal was to create a, uh, a, a definitely a regional draft only brewery, but uh, I was thinking that we, it was potentially going to be national, the first ever national draft brand. And we were well on our way, um, but the pandemic hit. And so we, I had about a million dollars worth of uh beer out in the market, draft beer. And the first day that the pandemic hit and the restaurants closed, I gladly, well, not gladly, but I bought all that beer back and dumped it. Uh, once it's in the keg, it's, it's, there's nothing else you can do with it. So we brought it back It went down the drain and, uh, I was left, uh, with the realization that, you know, at the time I had, you know, 60 plus employees and their, and their significant others and their families to take care of and to, to, uh, to see through this. And we didn't really know what the future held. So uh, I could sit back and just wait for draft to become a thing again, or I could pivot our entire business and go into a can. So that was the decision that I made. And we, we rushed, we fortunately had the design already for the can just in the event that we needed it. We were able to secure some, uh, some cans and, uh, away we went and we just started packaging and we got forced into a lot of, uh, grocery sets. And now all of a sudden people for the first time ever went to the supermarket and holy cow, Fiddlehead IPA is here. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to make light of the pandemic and, and everything that happened because a lot of people uh, really lost everything. But um, we were one of the you know rare exceptions where we were actually able to grow our business dollars over dollars, 25% that year uh, by, by, by sh- in a totally new market um, with where we didn't really have contacts or, or any type of relationship. So it was really uh, exciting. And I think that speaks to the power of the brand and uh, the power of our reputation in the market. I would have to agree with that. Um, now, I, you said that um, the Fiddlehead IPA was, I think you said 85% of the business? Yes, yep. Does it ever worry you that, like, people can be fickle? Does it ever worry you to have that much invested in the one brand? No, not, not really. I think that, uh, I think there's always going to be, I said it before, but there's always room in the market for uh, a well-balanced, accessible, uh, quality product at a great price. So, um, that's going to continue. I don't see people all of a sudden going from hoppy beers back to light American lagers. I mean, on, on occasion, I think every beer has the right occasion, but, um, as a, as a whole, I, th- I feel that the consumer's palates are definitely geared towards much more hoppy beers today. Um, you know, that next generation, it's hard to say. I, I really, I really don't know uh, what, what they're very tough to figure out. Um, and, you know, there's a lot more uh, competition out there these days, obviously in beer, um, you know, in our, in most of our regions, you know, cannabis is, is another, uh, distractor of consumers. Um, so it's, uh, you know, liquor is always continues to, to, to be very strong. So, uh, it's, uh, it's very interesting time in craft beer right now, but, uh, if you do one thing and you do it well, I think Anheuser-Busch has showed us that you, you, you can do okay. (laughs) (laughs) True story. Um, so my last question before I pass it over to Ken um, American craft beer lovers really enjoy their IPAs, um, but I feel like the Northeast U.S. has an even bigger love for it. Why do you think that part of the country demands so much IPA? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure that I really have the answer to that, but I, I, I definitely do see that, and I see when you start to uh, as we continue to move more west. Um, you start to see a lot more of uh, 
the breweries from the Midwest have a little lot more reach. Um, you know, when you start getting into Western New York, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, you know, that area, there's a lot more, uh, I start to, you know, start to run into a lot more brands from, from your neck of the woods. And, um, they do tend to, I, I would agree. They tend to have a wider portfolio of, of products. Um, but, uh, yeah, New Englanders just love their, love their hops, I guess. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. I, I, I don't know what the, what the reason or cause is, but, uh, I'm happy. Well, the New England IPA is pretty much what broke me into my love of IPAs now. So it's working. <laughs> Great. Ken. Yeah, Matt, I, on your website, uh, one, I noticed you do sell disc golf, uh, discs too. Yes. Uh, I actually noticed that, uh, Simon Lazat was over there for a lot of stuff. I'm guessing late last year, um, or early this year, depending on when, cause the video was posted in January. Uh, he, he, he was at my place and then he signed a huge contract like a week later and he won his, he won a tournament, his first tournament in a while. So, uh, I like to think I had something to do with that, but yeah, this, uh, he came and filmed that, uh, last I think it was two springs ago. Yeah. Well, my curiosity is peak. Do you throw? I do. Of course. Do you have more than just disc craft in your bag? Since I know all of your stamped fiddlehead discs are disc craft. Uh, disc craft is, is, is I'm, I, I do like disc craft. I'm not sponsored by, by anyone, <laughs> but I do love disc craft. And uh, so I have a, I have a course at my house uh, and, uh, it's called, and every other Wednesday I have, uh, about 40 people come out and play and it's called the money game. And, uh, we, afterwards we, I cook for everybody and we drink beer and there's fiddlehead IPA on every single tea box. So it's just, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm much more of a recreational player these days, but, uh, I do have a lot of, uh, my friend, uh, Jeff Spring is the, um, uh, director of the pro tour for the PDGA, the professional disc golf association of America. So uh, I have a lot of contact. I've met a lot of the, the pros, the touring pros, really great people love craft. It's a kind of like, you know, that's where like everything meets there. disc golf, craft beer, you know, it's just that kind of a perfect marriage. And uh, so it's, a, it's a great community. It's something I love to do. And uh, again, just it's uh, using that to help tell the story of who we are and uh, what we're all about. So we, we do a couple of disc golf beers that we've, we have done throughout the years and um, we have, we do, we do offer discs for sale. And uh, if you're fortunate and uh, you know, if I'm in a good mood, you drop me a, a line on uh, one of the social media, you know, who knows? It's, that's uh, that's how some people have showed up at the money game, some fans. So uh, you, you never know what will happen and you never know who's going to show up. We, we do uh we get a, a really wide range of players. So, Well, before we finish the show, I do have one more question I want to ask before we get into our final questions. Where did the name Fiddlehead come from? Well, we just, we, I really wanted to, uh, I kind of alluded to it before. Um, you know, I didn't want to have something that was overtly uh, Vermont. Uh, I didn't want, uh, I think that a lot of people uh, make that mistake with their brand and it really kind of, eventually uh, pigeonholes them into uh, a smaller business than, than they can necessarily grow. And um, I think people make that mistake by, you know, there's very few examples in my mind of breweries that kind of have a geographical name and then have been able to, to launch on a national brand as, as a national brand. Sierra Nevada is a good example of one that has been able to do that, but, but uh, I'm hard pressed to think of many others. So uh, when we were coming up with the name, we wanted it to, to have some regional appeal, but, but not kind of hit you over the head in Vermont. So Fiddlehead is uh, it's a head of a fern that grows, uh, it grows uh, up here in the, in the Northeast. It's the first thing that comes out in the spring. And if you harvest it at, at the correct time, which is a very short window, uh, you, you can cook it up and eat it. It tastes kind of like asparagus. Uh, and it's, it's uh, just a fun foraging. And we like the name for a number of reasons. Like we, we you know, kind of had second fiddle in mind right away and just that it, it can, it can go a number of different directions. So that, that was kind of the, our feeling there. And with Brewbound naming you guys the 2022 Craft Brewery of the Year, 
What is next? How do you top that off? How do you continue the legacy that is Fiddlehead? Well, the industry grew at 0.6% this year and, and we're at 25%. So uh, I think we're, we're well on our way. We're continuing our charge. And uh, that was just by, and we're, we're able to do those numbers. We added one additional state this year. Um, and so we're, we're, we're really, um, as I said, continuing that you know double digit growth uh, in every market. Uh, and uh, as long as I'm able to, to maintain the quality and freshness uh, of the product, uh, I'm willing to continue to grow it. But those parameters, uh, we're not willing to, uh, to deviate away, away from those. So it's, it's gotta be on our terms. Um, that's one of the great, great things about, uh, the business, uh, early on, this was kind of like when I was working at magic hat, I learned, uh, that they were kind of trying to grow very quickly and they, they brought on a tremendous amount of money investors. And, uh, that's when things really changed quickly. Um, you know, kind of back to Wendy's about culture and things like that. So the, you know, I, I like to say I learned a lot what to do in that my, my previous job, but I also learned what not to do. And one of the most important factors in, uh, I think the day-to-day operation of our business, as well as kind of the, the future and the way we set out going about doing things is that to this day, I own a hundred percent of the company. I have no investors. I have no partners. Um, so, I just do things that are good for my employees and good for the beer and the, and my, and my distributor partners. That's it. Those are the, those are the three people that I answer to. And, uh, you know, we proudly dump, you know, five plus batches a, a year out of our facility that I know, uh, you know, 99% of my cons, uh, competitors would put out the door. So uh, the future for, for Fiddlehead is to continue to make an incredible product deliver it at an incredible price and align ourselves with incredible partners uh, and really uh, have fun. It's a naked beer. We're not saving lives. We're making beer. And as we end the show each and every week, we ask you one final fun question before we let you uh, show and tell us where we can get your beer um, and where we can find you online. We're going to start with Dan. Dan, what is your final question for Matt here? All right, this is a fun one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Since he used to work at Magic Hat, we all know one of Ken's favorite beers is Magic Hat number nine. Uh, yes, right where the heck are beers like uh, Magic Hat number four or number five? <laughs> yeah, uh, they went. Yeah, those were not drinkable. I think. <laughs> I think in the the hundreds of episodes we've done this final question, that might have been the best final question I've ever heard. Dan, congratulations. <laughs> I Wendy, what's your final question? Um, well, I'm actually going to defer my final question to one from the chat. Um, Gary McCray says, you were one of the first to do a gin barrel beer. Is there any other barrels you'd want to use? P.S. Second fiddle is a baller. <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we, uh, I, I do want to get more into, into bar- barrel aging. We, we have a... Uh, we just did a major. We just underwent a major expansion about two years ago. We added another uh, thirty thousand square feet onto our brewery, so uh, you know we've got a little bit more space. But uh, it, you know, it's it's having the bandwidth, really trying to uh, to stay focused on on your core values. Uh, you know, not let a lot of the small things get in the way. But you know, barrel aging is something that I think is a, a great representation of of the craft of craft beer. So we want to continue to work with that, but um, it's really cool to see some of the different types of barrels that, that are out there. Uh, One time we had some barrels from, uh, they were from Central America somewhere, but man, these things were, had been through uh, like literally been through some wars and, uh, but it was really neat to see and to get those. So um, we don't have any plans for, for anything, for any other types of wood right yet, but uh Keep keep posted. We'll we'll come up with something fun. All right. And my final question for you. Uh obviously you mentioned that you love uh when you go out to grab a uh fiddlehead brewing beer. Uh but other than an IPA and any of the beers that are in the IPA world, uh what is a beer you enjoy to drink? A style. 
Well, we're, uh, we're, we have a, as, as I mentioned, we have an incredible uh, German brew house. Uh, it's a 60 barrel Rolex system. And uh, the reality is those types of systems are made to make incredible lager beer. So that is, uh, that is a, an area where we've, I know that's near and dear to your heart, Ken. So uh, we are uh, working on uh, a recipe right now for, an authentic German style Pilsner, which is uh, the, f- the first two batches turned out pretty awesome. So we are uh, looking at uh, doing an extension there, but you know, for, for the size we're at, it's, it's very, it's very difficult when you start talking about, you know, introducing another product because the most important thing for me is uh, you don't ever, in my opinion, you don't want to cannibalize your sales. So, you know, we, when, the, when we first came out with the IPA, then we, we came out with a, uh, a pale ale called Rarified Air, which was a great beer, uh, but it was too similar to our IPA. And what we were doing was just taking our IPA drinkers and giving them something new to drink. Uh, so it wasn't really furthering our sales. So uh, we're always looking to add another style. And I think that lager is a good example of that where, the possibility exists to bring new drinkers into the fiddlehead family. So that's kind of uh, our goal as we look at new brands and extensions to, uh, to not cannibalize our core products, but, but bring in new products to, to, uh, to strengthen our brand family as a whole. And that will do it for this episode of Better on Draft Fiddlehead Brewing. Where can they find you? Um, where can they uh, find your brewery? Where can they find you online? Where Where are you at? New England. And <laughs> you'll find us if you're looking for us. You'll you can't if you come to New England, you can't miss us. Uh, and that's the greatest <laughs> thing about about our brand. We are you can find our beer at the an incredible high-end craft beer bar. You can also find it at Fenway Park and you can find it at Chili's. So uh, that's what I feel has been a real strength of our brand is the ability to to be the best beer in a number of, of accounts throughout our footprint. All right. That's going to do it for Better on Draft. Thank you so much for joining us. Find us on all of our social medias. That's Better on Draft, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Untapped, YouTube, Kick, Twitch. I just, whatever just social going. media you use. Yeah. yeah. Whatever social media. MySpace. Um, I think we're still on Tinder. Uh, go find us. Live, live <laughs> journal right. and dead journal, too. Uh, yes. Both at the same time. <laughs> Simulcast. Uh, no matter what you think of your beer. We think, including Matteo, thinks it is better on draft. Have a good night. Better on draft. Cheers. Cheers.